Welcome back to another episode of Goldman Sachs Exchange's Great Investors. I'm Raj Mahajan, head of the firm's systematic client business and your host for today's episode. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with my friend, David Booth, founder and chairman of Dimensional Fund Advisors. Founded in 1981, Dimensional manages approximately $680 billion in assets and is the largest active ETF issuer after just three years of launching its first ETF. As we'll discuss, Dimensional is also quite different from traditional stock-picking firms and instead manages money through science-based systematic investing. David has spent his entire career applying groundbreaking financial theory and research to the world of asset management and in partnership with the most preeminent academics in modern finance. In 2008, David also made one of the largest ever gifts to the University of Chicago's business school, which now bears his name, Chicago Booth. David, welcome, and thank you again for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. Dave, let's start with your upbringing. You grew up in Kansas. Can you tell us about your background and some of the experiences that helped shape your approach to business? I tell you, the number one thing that probably shaped my attitude about business was starting my senior year in high school and in the first three years of college, I sold shoes, amazing enough. And what it taught me, I was a commission salesman. And so he had a big incentive to try to make a sale, obviously. And I quickly realized that was all well and good. And still, at the end of the day, I wanted to go home and feel good about myself. And that's been an attitude or a philosophy I've had in dealing with business. When I go home at night, I want to feel good about what we've done as a firm and what I've done. That's excellent. In Kansas, you went to the University of Kansas, and you graduated, and then you went to the University of Chicago's PhD program in 1969 with the plans of becoming a professor. Going from selling shoes to (laughs) becoming a professor, walk us through that bridge a bit and what drew you to Chicago and academia. Well, it was an incredibly exciting time to be in a business school. The field of finance was undergoing a revolution in the 60s and 70s. It had been going on for a while, and it had created so much excitement. If you think about it, before 1960, there was really no data to test people's claims. People have all kinds of wild claims about investing. And then in the 60s, all of a sudden, the data became available, and people could test out certain claims, and a lot of them were found to be wanting. Particularly important, I think, is in a fairly narrow window of time from, let's say, 69 to 72, we had the three biggest events, I think, in finance in the 20th century. You have Gene Fama's efficient market hypothesis. You have Bob Merton with his multi-factor theory, the intertemporal capital asset pricing model, Mm -hmm. as it were. And you have the Black-Scholes-Merton option pricing model. These three things came together in a very colorful and exciting way. And among other things, led to the creation of indexing, which was one of another big event, you know, for the 20th century. So you studied with Eugene Fama, who went on to win the Nobel Prize. What ideas about his research captivated you most? Just the notion of markets and how they work. We don't think markets are predictable. That's basically the idea. And too much of the financial services industry is getting you to try to predict the unpredictable, which didn't (laughs) seem to make any sense. And nobody was applying those ideas. So that was an incredibly exciting opportunity. I loved the ideas, loved the research. There was Jensen's study on mutual funds or Merton Miller with his capital structure and cost of capital yeah. and all these new ideas needed to get out there. And eventually I decided the world would be better if I worked on that out in the public rather than staying at a school somewhere. So that was a consequential decision, taking the road less traveled for a PhD student and actually becoming a practitioner practitioner, as we all agree, it worked out well for everybody. It worked out well for me, the school, and our clients. Was it a hard decision? No, it was probably naive. I was probably a little quick. I hadn't done a 
term paper actually was for Milton Friedman, and he wasn't too keen on the paper. And I'd worked really hard on it, along with Roger Ibbotson, my co-author. And I go, I don't think I'm cut out to be a professor. I enjoyed selling shoes. I'm not enjoying this. So I need to get out there and deal with the public somehow. All right. So now you have an MBA, and you are setting out to work in the industry. And your first job was at Wells Fargo. What were you trying to build at Wells? I'd come along. They already started this process. When I decided I want to leave the PhD program, I went into Fama's office. I would go into his office every afternoon because I was his research assistant. And I, I'm One of his a, finest, he would say. That's what he says. Now, if, if you succeed, <laughs> then people all of a sudden remember you as being a little more clever than you were at the time. I said, I want it out. So he said, well, I'll call up Mac McQuown at Wells Fargo, who was creating the first indexed portfolio. So I went out there and got the, the excitement that it was leaving the school, which was fantastic. Walked into an incredibly exciting time at Wells with the notion of what to do, how to invest, given the recent developments in financial science. And there are two threads that still really are there today. First off, the idea of in indexing at, at Wells sprang from Myron Scholes and Fisher Black. They convinced Mac McQuown to create this indexed portfolio. And that's how they started working together. And while working together, they developed the Black Scholes option pricing model. What they decided to do, there were two paths that Wells went down. One was the ideas of Black and Scholes, which was to engineer portfolios to have higher expected returns than the market. It was an equal weight index strategy. And the other path was a straight S&P 500 index fund. They were pursuing both of those, and the S&P and the trust department. And that's what took off very successfully. And eventually, from Wells, it went to BGI, and that was the yeah, it's a black rock. So you were, the, you, were, you were on the ground floor of what the, became, the, the, the passive movement. Yeah, right. Did you expect, did you ever, at the time when you were working on this, did you expect trillions of dollars of assets to be managed that way at some point? No. We thought maybe we could get up to $10 billion in AUM or something like that. We just didn't know. First off, you have to understand, we were all young. When I went to the PhD program, I was 22 and Fama was 30. I thought he was an old man. These ideas were popping up like crazy. And the other thing that Black and I don't know, it was before their option pricing model or as a result of the option pricing model, but the whole idea of options pricing is that flexibility has value at its core. And so on the path that was Black and Scholes, it not only was an engineered portfolio to beat the market, it was also using flexibility in trading to improve returns over what a mechanical index fund would That's, be able to do. That was a big idea, I'm sure, at the big time. Big idea. In fact, it was so big, nobody bought it because uh, we <laughs> ran into every kind of legal problem. I mean, for example, when we started to create a fund, the SEC wrote back, look, you guys aren't trying to pick winners. Why would they pay you a management fee for doing what you're doing? So we had to answer inane questions like that uh, along the way. And people would say, what you're doing is un-American. What's un-American about improving lives of people through investing, you know? Nothing at all. Now, one of the things I'm most fascinated by is that despite being on the ground floor of this massive move to passive investing, you decided in 1981, when you started Dimensional, if I might add, in your spare bedroom, not right. too far away from here in Brooklyn Heights, that you were going to build an active management firm. Why active and what was your vision at the time for the firm? These terms are, are funny to use. I would say maybe half of our clients view us as being passive and about half of them view us as being active in the sense that there's no forecasting. We engineer portfolios, which we think are structured towards parts of the market that have higher expected returns, not short-term movements, but just long-term higher expected returns. And that's one thing we do. And then we take this idea of flexibility has value 
and say, we think we can add value or indexing by trading better. Yeah, trade lower trading costs. Lower trading costs. This is the kind of stuff you guys do really well, which is dealing the quick, the trading of Yeah, lowering transaction lower, costs, lower having trade, the right. best technology. Yeah. No, it's certainly a big area of investment for us. So in launching Dimensional, what was the first product you created and how did it go? Well, it was great. The first fund we launched was our small cap fund. And because of this active-passive confusion, we just call it a dimensional fund rather than an index fund. It's, Is that where the name came from? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so we thought of the small cap stocks as being a different dimension. It wasn't 10 years later until Fahman French with their paper on the cross-section of expected returns documented that it really was a Talk about a being ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, ahead of the data. You see, at the time, our first clients were just large institutional investors, and they weren't holding small cap stocks in any meaningful way. And so that was our idea. Was an equity portfolio ought to have large and small stocks rather than have all your money in large. And so we didn't really have to have much data to support that idea. Eventually, it turns out, by sheer luck, Rolf Bonds at the University of Chicago had done his PhD dissertation on exactly what it was we wanted to do with the relation between company size yeah, big and, and the return. Yeah, And eventually we did get data, but we got our first clients in before we even had the data because the argument was so strong. Those ideas don't come along very often that strong. How did you realize the opportunity in small cap stocks, just given the transaction costs at the time, especially pre-electronic trading, I can imagine that was a hard problem. Oh, yeah. No, a lot of people were concerned. Myron Scholes, one of our lead independent directors of the mutual fund that we created, because, you know... The first product was a mutual fund. Yeah, it was a mutual fund. And that mutual fund, as we learned, I, I didn't know anything about running a mutual fund. We found out that we had to have an independent board of directors. Rex Sinkfield, my co-founder, and I walked over to the business school and in his office that day was Merton Miller, who was a legend among professors. And we asked him to be an independent director. And he said, sure. You just ran to him at the water cooler kind of thing? You no, know, we walked into his office. I mean, you know, when managed to fight our way through all the piles of papers on his desk and <laughs> stuff. And there are very few professors that everybody loves. And Merton Miller was one of those. And anyway, he was a great person, fantastic mind. He got his Nobel Prize in 1990. He was the first of our directors to get a Nobel. Note, you've used the plural. There. <laughs> yeah. Well, just last year, we ended up getting, well, in December a year ago, our fifth Nobel laureate sure. as a director. Anyway, Merton says, sure, he'd, because I'd been in the PhD program, I'd presented papers at a finance workshop to the professors there and knew Merton pretty well. And he said, sure, he'd like to help. And then we walked out of his office and Myron Scholes was on his way to lunch. And we go, hey, Myron, we need an independent director. So Myron raised the question that you were just asking, which is, well, how do you know you guys won't get scalped in trading? because you don't know anything, and you're going to be going into the market trading in, against people that think they have undiscounted information. Right. How does that work? Right. And we go, Myron, that's an empirical question. Maybe we can protect ourselves. Maybe we can't. But the important thing is to get access to small companies somehow, and we think this is the best way to do it. He goes, okay, well, how much are we going to get paid? I said, Myron, <laughs> we don't have any money, as it turns out. <laughs> but even if we did, we can't pay you as an independent director of the fund. So he said, okay. And so we, with that, we started this incredible connection. And as well, when we started the firm on the advisor side, our, our company itself, and one of the first calls was to Gene Fama, who had been 10 years since I'd spent much time with him. But he, I said, I'd like to have you be a founding partner and really head up our research activities. So he said, okay. So in a very short period Did of time- Did he think we, about it or he just said yes on the- Yeah, the yeah, you know. So all of a sudden we have some of the biggest names in finance agreeing to do it. And it really didn't cost us any money out of pocket, which was very important as well. And that's how we got started. And this is 10 years before 
the seminal paper, The Cross-Section of Expected Stock Market Returns right. by Fama. Yeah. And the theory would be drawing on Bob Merton's multi-factor theory that you can engineer portfolios to have higher expected returns in the market. It's basically not all returns are related to the market. That was the beta model at the time. So we have really good academic theory for to support what we were doing in terms of multi-factor theory of Bob Merton with his efficient market hypothesis of Fama said stock returns are not predictable. And then we have Blackshell's Merton option pricing model that says you have flexibility. You can do Round better than cross, indexing. Yeah. yeah. And that's that, how we got started. And when you were going out to investors, what was the early reception like? Most of the people thought it was a fantastic idea. I remember this one guy standing up and slapping his hip. He had a fake hip and goes, damn, that's a great idea. <laughs> so everybody loved the idea. People were concerned about, but can you execute? Here again, as Myron says, ideas are cheap. It's the execution that counts. So as a result, what happened was people gave us really small amounts of money to invest. Small amounts to an institution those days it might be a few million dollars. And that's how we got started. And then based on our actual results, our live results, people started getting confidence that we could actually deliver what we said. And then a funny thing happened was, instead of lagging the performance of small cap indices, we started actually having higher returns than benchmark indices. And that was total a shock. So anyway, that's, you know, it just supported the idea that flexibility has value. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So you've mentioned all these existing and future Nobel laureates, some of whom were on Dimensional's board and others contributing to the research. What was it like to manage them in the traditional sense? How did your investment team work with these legends in the industry? It was actually very exciting because, number one, you couldn't blow smoke in their face. You had to get your A-game together. On the other hand, if for our clients, as independent directors, their job was to really monitor our results on behalf of the investors in our funds. Who better to monitor our results than these leading academics? The world of finance, if you take out Merton Miller, Gene Fama, Bob Merton, Myron Schultz, Fisher Black, it's a much different field today than it was <laughs> than oh, we have, you know? Understatement. Totally. You mentioned trading is a big factor in dimensional's performance. Can you explain the firm's approach to trading and, and how that actually affects returns? Yeah, suppose you have an index fund and the job is to have zero tracking error relative to an index. Now, suppose a new stock comes into the index that day. It'll come in at today's closing price. That's the way it, all index funds I know of add stocks to their index or the bonds. If you're an index fund, it means you have to buy at the closing price because that's the price that's going in at the index. Right. So if you're an index fund manager, you'll say, I will pay anything but I have to have tonight's closing price guaranteed. And you're doing it at a time that every other index fund manager trying to track the same index, you're all trying to go the same index at the same time. And so we said, wait, we don't think that's a good way to trade. Yeah. Uh, that's even particularly in small cap stocks, as we used to tell people, small cap collectively, they're very liquid. You take the universe of all small cap stocks, there's plenty of trading volume. So it's a big room, but it's a small door. You can't be pushing a lot of money through it at any at I like point that. in time. Big room, small door. Yeah. In fact, all the ideas that you're describing about lowering transaction costs, that's what we're in the business of, right. is providing liquidity and finding ways to lower transaction costs. Sometimes it's in the form of a block trade, and other times it's a algorithm that's finely tuned to buy on the bid, sell on the offer, cross the spread when you have to, but identify ways because basis points really matter to our clients, and we're constantly hunting for the best way to do that. See, the social value in that is it makes prices even more likely to be fair. Because if there's a wrinkle in the price, your guys jump all over it. 
So that's the ultimate in democratization. So, you know, Joe or Mary coming in to invest from their home and wherever, they don't have to worry about prices. But David, the thing that's extraordinary about what you've said is we're doing this today with world-class technology. We spent hundreds of millions of dollars to develop doing this in the early 70s on small cap stocks where (laughs) talk about opacity in terms of identifying where the market was on that and to know that the outperformance in your strategy resided in being able to execute efficiently, that's next level. In some ways, summarizing very quickly, what I learned is our business, the money management business, is about trust. Investment solutions is our business. Trust is our product. And coming up with ideas that are sensibly executed that overall, over the long run, deliver what you said they were going to do, that's how you establish trust. So that's how we got started. It was based on the idea of we, we think we understand how markets work, the competitive advantage of markets, and all these people out there buying and selling. They have a lot of anxiety because to the extent they know something that's not reflected in securities prices, to the extent they have undiscounted information, the half-life of that's got to be very short. So they're out there very anxious. So what we would do is we thought we were providing a liquidity service, really. We'll go out there and provide that liquidity at a price for a fee. And that was the idea of how we got started and the education programs that you run, the advisor network of people that are connected to Dimensional. Tell us a little bit about when that idea came to mind and what was the logic behind taking that approach? So we started the firm in 81. By 1989, we were pretty well established on with the institutional clients with the mutual fund. And a financial advisor, Dan Wheeler, up in Sacramento, said that he would like to have access to our funds. One single advisor, advisor said yeah. That. So he came down to our offices and made the case why we should give him access for his clients. So he had, I don't know how many individual clients he had, but he was managing money for individuals. And we said, we're not too sure about that because individuals are in and out of the market. And we just can't have that in a mutual fund. A mutual fund's a good idea as long as everybody behaves themselves and they don't trade too much. He said, oh, no, we won't trade a lot. So we said, okay, we'll give it access to the funds. But if we catch you trading, we're going to shut you down. Fair enough. So he said, okay. Funny enough, about a year later, he comes back. He goes, I think there's a business in this. I've come across a lot of other advisors that would similarly like to have access to your funds, but they can't get in. And we said, okay, but administratively, we can't handle a lot of clients. So here's the deal. What we'll do is if the people that are interested, they need to come at their own expense to our offices for a, a day or two of training. And then at the end of it, if they seem sensible, we'll give them access to the funds. And secondly, then, they're going to have to, instead of investing directly in our fund, they'll invest through an omnibus account. People like at Schwab and Fidelity, those days, Pershing. Yeah, uh, right. And looking back on it, they, that doesn't seem very uh, clever. I mean, we're putting all these hurdles in front of people. They liked it. And what they really liked was the fact that they had to go through the hurdles. They know everybody else had to go through those hurdles. So they felt more comfortable investing in a commingled well, account. Almost a community type. Yeah, effect. right. And so that just we started small. And once again, it just built over time. You're one of the few firms, if not only, that implements the same investment philosophy across its investment vehicles. Why has the company stuck with its one strategy? Well, because it's the right one. I mean, it works. <laughs> yeah, it's a good reason. There's, there's still the whole idea. We still think for most people, the best way to start to think about investing is to approach the idea that the market's not predictable. That's like life in general. If, if you look at people 25 years ago, can you forecast where you are today? Or can you forecast where you are going to be 25 years from now? No, you Start down a path, and then you adjust, and you manage the uncertainty. Investing is about managing uncertainty, just like life is. And we think the best way to 
manage uncertainty is the way we do it. And instead of trying to predict what will happen, we plan for what can happen. And then here again, bring up Black-Scholes, we're flexible. We look at results, see what happens, just like you do in life. Some things work out well, some don't, and you make adjustments as necessary. And that's really what investing is about as well. No, it's very sound, very sound. And to me, that's one of the most extraordinary aspects of your business is taking these academic ideas that are in various journals and translating that to an end advisor who can communicate with Main Street about not only what they represent, but why they can outperform. Well, you know, one approach I've used, last Thanksgiving, I had a fun experience. I told my two kids, and they're plus ones, and my partner, over Thanksgiving, bring me a story about uncertainty, a big decision you had to make, full of uncertainty that worked out. I don't want to hear bad stories. Just <laughs> give me a good story. And their, their stories were incredible. And all of them had something in common. First off, people could forecast a little bit, but it was largely whatever decision they're making, they knew was uncertain. So they had to pay attention to what happened, adapt to it, control what you can control, plan, don't predict, and then play for the long haul and get the benefit of compounding. Almost all investors realize the power of compounding. I think Einstein called it the wonder of the world or whatever. Well, I think that's what life is about, too. You are the result of the compounding of many decisions you made in life. Maybe even that's where wisdom comes from. Getting people to talk about that and go, well, that's really all those principles are the principles, the same principles we use in investing. Plan, don't predict. You can't control the market. You can control how much risk you take. It's all about managing uncertainty. I really love applying the magic of compounding to areas even outside of finance. Just doing something, a habit, 10 minutes a day in a year, just the amount of time you've done that, and all of a sudden, it's a habit. It's part of your personality. That's right. But this whole managing uncertainty, is this the term that Bob Merton's kind of, I've got from him, which he has this great example, which is carrying an umbrella. You can't predict the weather. You can get some forecasts for the weather or whatnot. So you have to make a decision to carry the umbrella or not. Sometimes you carry it and you didn't need to, and sometimes you don't carry it and you should have. I mean, all of that's about dealing with uncertainty. And that's true. Markets are uncertain, but life is uncertain. I want to go back to your relationship with Professor Fama. And what was it like to be a graduate student working for him? What about your relationship back then really was the foundation for all these extraordinary things you've done together as partners? Well, you know, I've, I've tried to think about that, and he's thought about it a bit as well. But to paint a picture a bit, so that would be 1970, I was research assistant, which meant in those days I'd be over at the computer center all night programming something. And so what I would do is every afternoon I would go over to his office, and he would give me a list of things he wanted me to follow up on. And there'd be these pages of handwritten notes on a yellow pad. I would look at him, and I'd go, geez, for the same amount of time, he could have done the work himself. It was all about training me. He was apprenticing me, and for which I'm eternally grateful, obviously. So it just shows you what kind of person he is. And then, you know, Gene's moral compass is totally due north all the time, unwavering, and doesn't put up with anybody whose moral compass isn't due north. And uh, that was such a great lesson from him. Here again, being an ex-shoe salesman from Kansas, I thought sometimes that you, in real business, you had to shade things or be devious or something. That doesn't fly with Fama. You, you get to do that once, and that, that's it. It's going to uh, see right through it. You see right through it. And being able to be careful to not overstate what you know. And in most arguments, if you don't have data, don't engage in the argument. I mean, that's a learn from him. Because <laughs> if you don't have data, you're just arguing beliefs, which is somewhere between boring and a waste of time. I want to stay on Professor Fama for a second. 
did you expect the seminal impact that the 1992 paper was going to have? The yeah, cross, further for the yeah. listeners, the cross-section yeah, yeah, yeah. of expected stock returns. Well, and it was transformative. It, it is the correct way of going about thinking. Even people that think they can beat the market, what you want to do, whatever your model is, the first thing you want to do is try to disprove your model. And that's another thing I learned from Fama. When he would come out, and now he with his colleague Ken French, come out with a paper, once they come up with what they think is some new evidence, then they want to go back and try to disprove it. It's that kind of rigor that makes all the difference. It's made him... So he is. I think academics are shocked that we can make a business out of telling people what we think the truth is. Anyway, he says everything he's learned in business, he learned from me, which... That's high praise. High praise is not true. Because <laughs> what happens is he understands incentives so well that he understands business. He just doesn't see it packaged in that format. So with the information he deals with, he figures out conclusions as fast as any businessman about any kind of business topic, pretty much. As you can tell, I'm a big fan of his still must left be home. The expertise around incentives must be in the water at the University of Chicago. Well, it really is. It's probably the graduate school of incentives backed up by data. You know, I mean, that's, that's about yeah. it. As you look out forward, where do you see the asset management industry innovating the most? I think a lot of the innovation is going to come about because of administrative costs and technology being better, cheaper, faster. I don't know all the applications, but it's more likely to be that way than major disruptions in the science. I think the science of investing has come a long way in the last 60 years, and there will continue to be innovations. It's not static, but I doubt there are any kind of innovations comparable in magnitude to the innovation of efficient market hypothesis, multi-factor theory, and Black-Scholes op Merton option pricing. Those are all-time home runs. So you're saying that the frictional cost through technology will go down. Right. So managers can deal with smaller and smaller clients. That will change things. If we can get closer to mainstream people, the more benefit we can provide. Because the big institutional clients don't pay much in management fees. It's smaller uh, Yeah, so is this, is this part of this movement of the democratization yeah. of finance and getting Main Street more access to the best ideas? I'm glad you brought up democratization because that's really what has gone on. Sometimes investing in capitalism and stuff gets a bad rap. But this shows how the markets have become more democratic. You can buy index funds that are very inexpensively. How cool is that? It's almost approaching zero. Yeah. Anyway, I think that will continue and the world will be better off for it. I want to move to philanthropy. And in 2008, you made one of the largest donations ever to a U.S. university, to the Chicago Business School, which changed its name to the Booth School of Business. Certainly, the Business School has played a key role in informing dimensional strategies. Tell us about what prompted the move, as well as the timing, 2008, of the donation. Well, what had happened to me by 2008 now, by that time, we'd been in business, say, 27 years. And I have a wife and two kids, and we were financially secure, and I provided as much for the kids as I was planning on giving them. So I started turning attention to giving back. And bingo, right at the top of the list is the University of Chicago. You've got a hint of, as to how much they influenced me and how much they helped me. And so I owed them a lot. So I said, look, what I want to do is give a big chunk of what I have. And so I approached the dean of the business school, Ted Snyder at the time, said, look, this is what I would like to give to the school. It's not really a gift. I view it as a partnership distribution because in some ways the, the business school has been, been, been yeah. my partner all along. Sure. We just didn't have a formal declaration. And he goes, holy cow, we were thinking about naming the school and we're going to ask for nearly this much. We'll name the school after you. So I said, okay, whatever. That's excellent. And how has the donation affected the business school? Uh, according to the dean, it's been dramatic. See, I told him I, I expect the business school to operate in kind of a normally, you know, be financially responsible 
my gift is to pay for a lot of the dream stuff that you like to do. You couldn't get through the budgeting process somehow. And they really used it that way in order to attract the best professors. Fama says that the finance department now is the best it's ever been. And the dean breaks down business schools into eight. He said, in his view, Booth is the number one business school in five of the eight. So in finance and marketing and so forth, he views it that Booth is the best. That's amazing. Oh, then Fama had the best way of describing it. He goes, it's not that it, my kids did anything. It just took away excuses. <laughs> so a bit of a lightning round, maybe a couple other topics. Okay. Um, you are a legendary basketball fan. Is it true that you purchased the Jim Naismith 13 Rules of Basketball and donated it to KU? I did that. People don't realize, of all the major sports, basketball is, I think, the only one that you can identify when it was founded, when it started. It was founded, actually, as a class project by James Naismith in 1892, Springfield, Massachusetts. And, um, and he was a Kansas coach, right? After he got his degree, he went to Kansas and became the first physical education coach at Kansas, taught there for 40 years. He's buried in Lawrence, where the university is. And I grew up on Naismith Drive. So wow. it's in my blood. So I went to the University of Kansas. Of course, basketball is big at Kansas. And when those rules came up for sale at Sotheby's eventually, they'd been in the family from 1892 till 2010. And then it was sold in auction at Sotheby's. And I was able to acquire them and give them to the university. I can't wait to tell my son that story. And so I got to ask, will Kansas win a NCAA championship in the next three years? Well, hey, I hope so. Talking about uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, look, if you look at the March Madness, there's 66 teams. If you look at the odds of any one of them winning, it's pretty slim. But somebody always wins. Somebody always wins. <laughs> All right, so now let's go to across the planet to Stockholm. Have you been to the Nobel Prize award ceremony? Yeah, I mean, this is a straight University of Chicago kind of story. I've been to the Nobel ceremony twice. Twice? Once when Bob Merton and Myron Scholes got in 97 when they got their Nobels, and then in 2013 when Gene Fama got his Nobel. And it is quite an experience. The Nobel laureates have seven or eight days they have to be there, and they run them ragged but they give them a couple nights off. So there's one night where there's a big ceremony, and in addition to that, there are a couple nights when the laureates have free evening. The first time I went with Myron and Bob, I saw how to do it, how to organize it. So then in 2013, when Gene got it, and he invited me to they get tickets. Gene, of course, has all kinds of kids and grandkids, but he had two tickets left, one for Ken French, his, his longtime colleague, and, and one for me. So I said, okay, let me plan your two free evenings, which I did, and they were spectacular, and we had a great time. That sounds like a really good time and a special moment for both of you. So now let's go back to the investing questions. What's the biggest lesson you've learned as an investor, knowing that sometimes the best lessons come from investments that didn't work out as well? Number one lesson is something I guess I already knew, but is that investing is uncertain and complex. There's no way around it. There's a lot of things that's impossible to know or turn around the other way, and starting with Fama's efficient market hypothesis. Basically, what that says is we think the stock prices reflect all available information. So what's really cool is the idea that the stock market is really the original AI application. Oh, interesting. Yeah, prices reflect all available information. And people talk about big data now. We've been dealing with big data for 60 years. We collect basically every stock trade on every stock and every principal stock market around the world every day. That's big data. Yeah, it sure is. It's actually a really interesting mental model to think about it that way. What's the best piece of advice you can give our listeners 
investment advice that you wish someone had given to you when you were younger in your career? Here again, you can't predict markets. Control what you can control. Make the best informed choices you can make. Figure out what your goal is. Because life is uncertain, you need goals and manage the goals. Pay attention to the goals. Don't worry so much about short-term movements in the market. We don't think people can predict those. But to plan for the long haul, capture the benefit of compounding. And I guess if you do all of that, and here's what I've learned, I think, which is along the way, then you'll feel safe. You'll feel secure. Even though the market's fluctuating a lot, you've made the best choices you can. So judge yourself by the quality of the decision you make and not the outcome. That's great advice. Finally, what are you most excited about in the world right now? I'm most excited about my two grandkids. I have two new <laughs> grandkids, uh, so that's... Congratulations. Yeah, I used to think of myself as being an optimist, and then I think, now I think of myself more as a realist, which is, what makes all of this really work, this whole system? What's the process? At the end of the day, it's all about ingenuity. We wrote about this in March of 2020 when everybody was in a lot of stress about markets and so forth. Hey, look, we don't think markets are predictable, so I don't know where the market's going to go. Here's what I do believe, though, is that when something bad happens to you, you don't just sit there and take it. You figure out what it takes to get back on track. And that's what goes on with companies. When something bad happens to them, they don't just sit there and take it. They figure out how to get back on track. That's human ingenuity. It's true of individuals and it's true of firms. And I'm totally confident that going forward, that's what will happen here. I can't predict which ones are going to be winners. There'll be winners and losers. I don't know who the winners will be or the losers. But I do have faith that we'll get back on track. And so that's kind of always my prevailing view. So in terms of what I'm excited about now, what I'm excited about is I really have internalized all of that. And I, that's what I really believe. And yeah, we have a lot of problems and there are going to be some missteps and there are going to be some bad things happen and we'll overcome all of those. And over the long haul, we'll, we'll be just fine. That is probably the best place we could wrap up. <laughs> I want to, David, you're an inspiration to me and I'm certain to many of our listeners. Thank you for joining us today. Okay. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And thank you to all of our listeners listening to this episode of Goldman Sachs Exchange's Great Investors. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday, January 30th, 2024. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you'll follow us on Apple, Spotify, or Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and leave us a rating or a comment. If you'd like to learn more, visit gs.com and sign up for Briefings, a weekly newsletter from Goldman Sachs about trends spanning markets, industries, and the global economy. The opinions and views expressed in this program may not necessarily reflect the institutional views of Goldman Sachs or its affiliates. This program should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person without the express written consent of Goldman Sachs. Each name of a third-party organization mentioned in this program is the property of the company to which it relates, is used here strictly for informational and identification purposes only, and is not used to imply any ownership or license rights between any such company and Goldman Sachs. The content of this program does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient and is provided for informational purposes only. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice through this program or to its recipient. Certain information contained in this program constitutes forward-looking statements, and there is no guarantee that these results will be achieved. Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide updates or changes to the information in this program. Past performance does not guarantee future results, which may vary. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this program, and any liability, therefore, 
including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed.